0: show podcast. Our special guest on this episode is Steve Hanulik, who had a really cool opportunity to be involved in finding the ghost of Baker Lake. This is basically a a legend from the Yukon from the day. And Steve, if someone hasn't heard of ghost of Baker Lake, we'll, we'll talk about your involvement with this, but can you kind of bring us up, have a little history moment with us about where this came from? What's that story? Well,
1: it started uh, back in the nineteen uh, sixty nine. Uh, a freighter aircraft that was British built came up to the Yukon Territory uh, to do uh, fuel runs into a mining site. It landed on the ice, and one of the landing gear was broke through, and the aircraft was was abandoned and, and sunk to the bottom. And uh, there had been a couple of searches over the years to find it, but uh, it's something that I had known about for for quite some time, and I'd heard about it when I was a child. And, uh, always kept in the back of my mind that that would be something that would be a fun adventure and was able to go out last summer with a great team from the Yukon and help find it and get the first images of it in, uh, just under 50 years.
0: Did you grow up in the Yukon?
1: I was born and raised in the Yukon. That's right. Yeah.
0: So it was kind of one of those stories, like you said, growing up, you hear about it, but it became, was it one of those ones that people talked about a lot kind of as you were growing up?
1: Not really no it was it was the kind of thing that see I grew up in an aviation family my father was a commercial helicopter pilot and uh, and I grew up around a lot of the aviators uh, in the territory and so there's there's Yukon legends and then there's Yukon aviation legends and and those are a little bit more exclusive but it was something that that wasn't a secret people that were that were Aviators or people that had been up there at that time knew that this aircraft was there. But there just hadn't been the interest other than a few sporadic uh, incidents where anybody had launched any kind of a major expedition to find it. The exception being in 1995, uh, another pilot uh, and a and a set of divers went in and uh, dove into the lake. And uh, because of the depth of the lake and the darkness of it, they weren't able to locate it. So we were able to piggyback on a little bit of their their information that they had found and uh, and uh, documentation that they had made about their search and use that as the basis for our search
0: so how did you get involved with being a part of the team to go and find it like where did that evolve from
1: Really what it was was uh, I had been good friends with the with the uh, the pilot that had gone in in 1994 five, I believe. And I was good friends with his son. And it was the kind of thing, like I said, that, that we had grown up talking about and we knew that it would be fun. And around the same time, uh, in my own personal story, I had become aware of uh, deep sea underwater exploration. The Titanic had just been discovered and, and all these great images of that were coming back from uh, from the dive in National Geographic and on television and things like that. And I also became aware of what's called ROV technology. Now, for for anybody that is unfamiliar with this, it stands for Remotely Operated Vehicle. And what it is, is a tethered miniature submarine that has a camera on board and thrusters and things like that. And it could go down to into depths and into areas where you wouldn't want to send a, a traditional diver. And that's something that really interested me. And I thought, boy, that would be a fun thing to to be able to secure, to be able to find something like this. And it was really the first thing that I thought of when I, when I saw these images come back of the Titanic was I thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun to find this old airplane? And again, many, many years went by. The technology was well out of the price range and, and abilities of, of, of myself, but it was something that I kind of kept an eye on. And I kept, you know, bugging my my fi- my friend in the Yukon about, you know, boy, it'd be fun to go find this. And a few years ago, I started looking up this ROV technology again. And I became very aware that, that there were a lot of, I guess they call them amateur, but underwater enthusiasts that were starting to, to build and fabricate their own ROVs as camera technology got better, as battery technology got better and, and all this stuff became less expensive and more accessible. These things were starting to fall into place. And there were a few, uh, Uh, You know, you say engineering students and things like that that were assembling this and and engineers, underwater enthusiasts that were putting this stuff together. And it was the kind of thing I said, well, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on this and see what becomes of it, because it might be the kind of thing that uh, uh, that uh, becomes accessible in a few years. And then a few years after that, I decided to start looking for it again. And I came across a company down in Berkeley, California, that was doing exactly that. But they were actually making ROVs for what they call citizen scientists and citizen explorers. Things that were accessible to everybody that people could use to explore and document uh, the ocean and, and uh, things like that. And I knew at that point that's, that's what we needed. So I just took a risk and, and put down a deposit and uh, contacted my friend in the Yukon, who's still there. And he said, well, you'll have to get in touch with a gentleman named Doug Davage. And, and I did And Doug Davage is a, is a, a fairly well-known in the, in the archaeological and, and uh, underwater community in the Yukon and in Canada. He's best known for discovering a gold rush era sternwheeler in Lake LaBarge, just North of Whitehorse, Yukon, uh, about 10 years ago. And, uh, was able to discover that. And it was a uh, quite a big find for the archeological community in Canada. And he also had his own ROV and, and his own, uh, his own experience with diving and launching these expeditions and stuff. So he became a, a incredibly valuable person to have on board the team. So he and I just made a handshake deal over the, over the internet. We, over email, we, we had never really met until three days before we went into the bush together. And, uh, and he came on board and right away he was enthusiastic. He, he committed to it right away. And we were just waiting on the, the ROV to show up in the mail at that point, which is a bit of a tense moment. Uh, but it did, and we were able to test it and we were able to, to uh, bring it in. Uh, and we made a deal to go in, in, uh, at the beginning of August of last year and, uh, everything kind of fell into place from there. Kind of a side story was that, I actually celebrated my wedding anniversary while I was in the bush, and my wife was was good enough to overlook that and say, "Go ahead and you know enjoy yourself for <laughs> for a couple of days. We'll talk when you come back."
0: You probably had to bring back
1: jewelry, right? That's right, exactly. <laughs> some some gold nuggets, yeah,
0: absolutely. So the moments when you're out and you're looking for it and and you realize that there it is, like you found it. Like what was that like?
1: Well, there was there was two moments. Uh, that we experienced that, that feeling. One was, we initially, we didn't use the ROV on the initial discovery. We, we used a side scan sonar technology. Basically it's a, it's a type of fish finder that scans the bottom and uses a a sonar to, to bounce back and create imagery of the, of the entire lake bed. And you do these long passes up and down the lake. And we had done a few and we saw a few interesting things, but nothing that really, uh, uh, interested us one that it was a, a possible hit, and then the the pilot on the in the in the float plane came out, and uh, Kyle uh, he came out and uh, taxied up to us, and he had to head back to town, and he asked how we were doing, and we said we have hit a few things, but not much, and then he went ahead and took off, and we continued our path, and we somehow we actually ended up covering the same area that we had just covered and there it was so that first ghostly image that we had found of it was actually the the airplane and we saw this very very distinct outline of this aircraft on its back uh, and we were able to tell that right from right from the surface and uh, there was a few cheers and, and and a lot of excitement and everything was was uh just very very surreal at that moment and then what we did is we we marked it we were able to do several passes of it so we were able to mark that position with a gps and then we came back to shore and unloaded all the sonar equipment and reloaded all the ROV equipment and and brought that out to the Lake, and we able to uh, we had set a buoy so we were able to find that location again, and uh, the sent the ROV down. Now the ROV is at, uh, the aircraft was sitting at about 100 and 150 feet depth and uh, almost out of surface light conditions. And when you're sending the ROV down without a real frame of reference, sometimes it's very easy to get lost down there. But luckily, we were able to get to the bottom and, and and set off on our pre-assigned compass heading and found it right away. There it was sitting there just waiting for us. So that was that was a moment, again, that I would have expected to be more surreal. But at that time, you're really concentrating on, OK, let's document this thing. Let's photograph it. Let's see how it's laying. Let's uh, make sure we don't get the tether tangled. Again, this this ROV has a has a long, long tether. So you don't want to get that wrapped around something. You don't want to get this this thing stuck in any place where you can't get it out of. So all these things are going through your head. And it wasn't until we came back to shore. And we started looking at the footage that suddenly it for me it's any anyways that it that it sunk in that what we had found and what we had what we had done so that was a a pretty great experience
0: a little inner child Steve <laughs> got to finally then celebrate something he'd thought about since he was a kid whereas you had to be professional Steve when you were out doing it
1: <laughs> well, I'm not sure how professional professional Steve is but <laughs> but you know certainly uh uh it was the kind of thing where you do take it very seriously at the time because uh, you know, you've, you've put in a lot of, uh, a lot of time and, and energy and dedicated a lot of equipment to this purpose. So you want to make sure that you're, that you're really uh, treating it as seriously as possible so that <clears throat> are done, that you've provided the best documentation of this that you, that you can and that, uh, that everybody's come back safe and happy and, and had a chance to uh, uh, share in this experience. And, uh, I know for me, it was, was, you know, a decades old dream. I know for Doug, he had known about it for, for quite a few years. And he, he has, you know, always has these little lists of all the different things that he knows are underwater and stuff, different places that he'd love to find. So that was definitely something he crossed off. And in the case of, of Kyle Cameron, the pilot and his wife, Sarah Cameron, they had known about it again for, for many, many years as well. So, so as soon as they knew that we wanted to go in and find this thing, they just jumped on board right away. So everybody was really dedicated to it and, and, uh, couldn't have had a better team and uh, certainly couldn't have had a more enthusiastic team.
0: you're a part of preserving and kind of telling the the next chapter of, of something in history, and then what
1: <laughs> that's that's always the next question is that you know we we as soon as we got back, uh, we contacted the uh, Yukon archaeological department and and made them aware of the search and or then the search and the find for right now, you know there's always interest in in recovering it and things like that. Uh, it's not a small aircraft. It's got a 108 foot wingspan, so it's it's quite big. Twin engine for any avi- aviation enthusiast out there. It's a, a Bristol 170 freighter, so you can you can Google that if you want. Being in a landlocked lake, quite a ways from any major road and a few kilometers from a way, major riverway, it's quite inaccessible right now. You know, it would be quite an expedition to bring in a barge and bring in a crane and, and whatever you would need to do to 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 lift this thing out of that depths. Again, it's at the kind of depth where you would you would want to certainly use a, a highly trained technical divers for as, as opposed to a recreational diver just because of the depth and the, the temperature of the water and things like that so uh you know it's the kind of the kind of thing that for us right now as we are it's it's not economically feasible but it's the kind of thing that you know that we're we're extremely interested in in hearing if anybody else is is interested if 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 uh if this is the kind of thing where uh, where somebody, uh, even some other country learns about it and, and, uh, and shows some interest. We can certainly, uh, we would love to, to be able to, to discuss the possible recovery of that. It's a fairly rare aircraft. It, uh, there was only about 216 of them made in the world. I think there's about somewhere between nine and 11 that exist today. in some, in some form, none of them are flying. There's actually one in the, uh, in the, uh, Reynolds museum up in uh, Wataska in there. Actually, there's one in Canada and the last operating ones in the world were in Canada. So it, it's uh it was the kind of thing that it was British built, but it did have quite a bit of, uh, of a, of a Canadian identity uh, and was uh, seen a bit in, in, in Canada. So it's the kind of thing that, that at this point we'd be looking at more of a uh, somebody that would show an, an, you know, certainly a bit of nostalgia and interest in this particular aircraft type. It was a civilian aircraft. It wasn't a, a military aircraft. So it's got a very particular set of, uh, of enthusiasts and collectors that would be that would be behind it but until then it's the kind of thing where you know it's something that's always uh, that again like i said we've cataloged the the location of it and the, and the condition of it and and uh you know it'll be for the future to decide what uh what happens with it
0: so if they turned it into a movie <laughs> okay. If we think big firm, okay, they decide to make a movie about you and your team finding it. Who who plays Steve Hanlick in the movie?
1: That is a question I've never been asked before ever in my life. Uh, <laughs> Yay. Wow. Uh you have to come back to me on that one, but
0: uh, it's one of those putting you on the spot questions, yeah, but yeah, yeah, you can think about I, that yeah. and
1: a young a young Bruce Campbell.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So what about okay, so we we wait for the enthusiast with a big bag of money to recover the airplane. We know that it's there and that you found it. Did it sort of spark that bug like your, your friend in the Yukon and now you kind of have a list of other things you'd like to go and find too, or, or what happens with you next?
1: Well, there's always a, there's always a list. And again, a few of them I, I was made aware of uh, quite some time ago and a couple just came up after we had found this one. And and uh, Bob Cameron, the gentleman that had, had led the original expedition in there and, and had documented the, a Lot of the photographs and things like that that we, uh, that we used to, to locate it uh, last year. He made me promise to, uh, to look for one in particular that was a, uh, a stern wheeler that was lost in another stern wheeler that was lost in Lake Labarge uh, called the Thistle. And that's one that uh, that sunk, uh, I believe, in 1929. If I'm not mistaken, it was a uh, a commercial uh, stern wheeler that was delivering supplies up to uh, up to the different trading posts at that time, and uh, and hit some uh, rough weather and and had some uh, uh, structural issues and and sank. All hands on board were were saved, and and uh, they had a barge that they were able to cut loose and get away. And the ship sunk. Uh, it's in much much deeper water than the, what we what we found, so that's going to require a bit of a restructuring of our of our planning process, but it's the kind of thing that that I personally am very enthusiastic about. There are also uh, a couple of other aircraft and different things like that that are that are floating around the Yukon, and uh, we we hope to if if we ever find any any more of these things, we hope to find them when there's still somebody around that knows the story. As long as you know uh, the the people that might have seen it firsthand might no longer be with us, but certainly the people that heard those stories firsthand you know hopefully are, are are still around and and would still uh, uh know these stories and i know that even with the uh with the bristol freighter here as soon as we came back and and uh and we were covered on the news and and in print and and on tv and the radio and things like that we had a few people actually come forward with with new photographs that we had never seen before new information uh, uh information about the uh you know the pilots and the crews that were on it uh you know different incidents like that and and those kind of personal stories and those personal, uh, uh, personally identifiable moments became very cru- crucial because it's the kind of thing that someone might have said something on the day or somebody might have seen something on the day, things like that, that was never recorded, never part made a part of a, an official report, but becomes very valuable for us to be able to tell the story of this thing. When you're trying to take three or four different narratives, I grew up hearing one particular story of of, of what had occurred, and then I get feedback of well, I'd heard from this other person that this had happened and things like that. So we were able to to take those stories together and maybe kind of find a, a bit of a truth in, in that. So
0: has any of that part been documented yet? Like, do you think you'll put that into a book or a something like how, how will we know more of that story or will we?
1: Well, you know, I am hoping again, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing where if I can find the, the time I I'm documenting and trying to compile uh, as much of the history of the aircraft going right back to its construction as I can. And it's different operators and what happened to it. And then, and then our story at the end, I'm not sure if it's material necessarily for a book, but certainly for a a report or an article or something that, that we can, we can take that. And it's something that we're, we become aware of that, uh, and I think the whole team feels this way. Is that it's it's the kind of thing where now the onus is on us to carry that story forward uh, and to to collect that thing because if as stories never seem to they always seem to kind of spread off in a million different directions and unless somebody at particular moments in history collect that information and and, and restructure it, it'll just dissipate into. A million little dots and you'll never be able to connect the dots so so that's something that uh as just as a archaeological enthusiast and an underwater enthusiast and and a fan of airplanes you know seeks to do is 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 hopefully put together something so that uh you know so that other people can take that information and and uh move ahead from that just as we did from the from the earlier uh information expeditions that we had
0: i love that and i I don't know. I think you should do a book and a movie. Like I'm thinking big for you. We'll we'll secure some actors and go from there. But all around, a cool experience. What do I know that you're a father of two? What did the kids think? Do they they think that you found something cool, or are they too young to really grasp what some of that looks like?
1: They always ask me about the airplane. There's no, you know, there's no uh, question about what they're talking about when they say the airplane. When Daddy found the airplane, so that's something that really you know to use a cliche it warms my heart it, it definitely is is something that uh, just helps this entire feeling of, of feeling like we've all accomplished something and and hopefully the others uh, feel this way as well I know certainly my my son who's who's a bit older he you know he knows about the aircraft and it was something that he that he's now showing an interest in as well uh, uh, in terms of uh, underwater exploration and things like that but he but if if anything it's it's also about um, showing hopefully showing the kids that you know that you can you can do something that you decide to to set your mind to and and uh, that uh, that the opportunities are all around you and and uh, also to, to be able to look at and treat history as something that is accessible and something that that uh, does shape us and something that we can uh, that we can see and enjoy and it doesn't have to be something that is that is lifeless but something that that is constantly being discovered and restructured and things like that and and uh, so hopefully that's uh, sorry for the lo- the long rambling answer there, but <laughs> but hopefully that is is something that you know um, myself and and uh, and you know for the kids and for for everybody else out there that you know that is interested in this kind of thing you know it's it's do it it's possible and uh, the tools are out there and the people are out there and and uh, the opportunities are there so go for it.
0: So we're able to share sort of this story now across the country and worldwide. So if somebody listening is like. I know some of that story, or my grandpa knew some of that story, or I want to be a part of this, or I have an idea, how can they connect with you to kind of help take this to the next place if they choose?
1: They can contact me uh, through my email at wellwaterfilms at gmail.com. That's W-E-L-L-W-A-T-E-R-F-I-L-M-S at gmail.com email for for doing this kind of documentary uh, filmmaking and and exploration things like that i would love to hear from anybody that uh, that has any bit of story or or any story that they'd like to share about something that they're interested in with regards to to underwater exploration or or aviation things like that